As I've already mentioned, we want to turn our thoughts once again to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2. Some time back, we looked at the first part of verse 1, just the first few words, where Peter introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we looked at what lies behind that that introduction and the meaning that it would have had for those to whom he was writing. Now this evening we want to take a detailed look at some more of these opening words in verses 1 and 2. Turning our attention now to the Christians to whom the apostle was writing. These believers were facing hostility and persecution in the world in which they lived. The basic purpose or intent of Peter writing was to seek to encourage them in their hard-pressed circumstances and to exhort them toward a life of endurance and victory in the midst of their sufferings for Christ's sake. It's interesting that the word suffering occurs at least 15 times in this epistle. And there are many other similar terms such as fiery trial, trial of your faith, enduring grief, and being buffeted. And it's in view of this hostility that they are already experiencing and which Peter indicates they are about to experience with increasing intensity that Peter sends this letter with its message of encouragement and admonition and exhortation. So it's a letter that we carefully need to reflect upon. And I say that because of the occurrence and pressure of anti-Christian rhetoric and lifestyle in our own country today. We could easily find ourselves in the position that these Christians were in within short time. And there should be nothing surprising about that. should be nothing surprising about the fact that hostility in relation to Christian life and experience is evident. You know, when you read the Bible and the history of the church, you discover that this is one of the ever-present factors. Jesus warned us that this would be the case. And the Bible writers have warned us again and again. Indeed, we live in a world that's alienated from God because of our sin. And because of the enmity that exists between God and a sinful world, there is naturally antagonism against God and consequently against his people. So we can expect persecution in this world. And this is not merely a feature of past generations or something that biblical writers mention. You know, it's probably true, as I read somewhere recently, that more Christians have suffered for their testimony to Christ in the 20th and 21st centuries than in any other period of the Church of Jesus. But just now, we want to focus on the way Peter describes these first century persecuted believers. And then just for a brief moment, by way of conclusion, looking at what he desires for them, how he describes them, what he desires for them. And we can learn a great deal uh, from that. So first of all, let's look at Peter's description of the recipients of this letter. Now the way in which Peter addresses those to whom he was writing is full of interest and instruction, but 
It's also designed to encourage and to strengthen them in their calling. And Peter describes them in three very simple ways. He tells us that they were strangers. Sometimes it's translated uh, exiled people or dispersed people. And then he speaks to them, he speaks to us of them as being scattered people. They were strangers, they were scattered. But he also tells us that they were special people. They were special to God. So those are the three things that we want to take up mainly this evening and to look at. Let's see them first of all as strangers. What does that mean? Now this word, as it's used in the AV, it's used also in the other versions, but sometimes other versions would use other words. But this word was often a description of those who were forced into exile to live in a foreign land. There's probably a reference here to some of these believers who had literally had to leave their homeland for, their sa- for the sake of their testimony to Christ. But I think Peter undoubtedly had in mind the common use of the term with reference to God's people living in a hostile world. You see, a stranger is someone who lives amongst people of a a different culture or a different language, different habits, different customs. He recognizes and they recognize that he doesn't belong there. And consequently, they find his ways strange, and he finds their ways strange. He is a stranger. And if that stranger doesn't adopt or integrate amongst the people whom he is amongst, then he's very likely to become an object of resentment and even hostility. Now, Peter uses the term to make the point, again, in chapter 4, in relation to moral behavior. He exhorts his readers to arm themselves with the same attitude that Christ had in the face of hostility and misunderstanding. They are no longer, he says, to live according to their old standards, their old way of life, but to live according to the will of God. And they are warned that those who still prefer their own ways won't understand or be sympathetic to the change that they had undergone. Peter says, they speak evil of you. They think it's strange that you do not run with them to the same excessive riot. Some of you may remember that's a point that's forcefully made in a little scripture union film strip that was entitled The Stranger. Some of you may have uh, uh, seen it in the past. Uh, I haven't heard it mentioned in recent times, but it was a very useful thing that was used in evangelism and Christian teaching many years ago. But in the New Testament, this manner of speaking is, it, it was not peculiar to Peter. You may remember Paul writing to the Ephesians. He reminds them that when they walked according to the course of this world, they were aliens, foreigners, strangers, he says, to God and to God's covenant promises. 
But now he says, being united with Christ through his death on the cross, you are no more strangers, but foreigners and fellow citizens with the saints of the household of God. In other words, they've been brought out of one kingdom and into another. Before, they were strangers to the realms of grace and of God. Now they're God's friends. And they have become strangers and outsiders to the realm of sin and Satan to which they once belonged. The writer to the, Hebrew, the writer to the Hebrews also uses the term. He speaks of Abraham when he left his homeland. He said, by faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promises. And goes on to say, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. And they that say such things declare plainly that they seek another country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country. That is a heavenly. In other words, those who desire the heavenly country are content to be regarded as strangers here. And you see, that's how Peter regarded the believers in his day. Is that how we see ourselves as Christians in this world today? You know, sometimes I think we can become so comfortable here and feel so much at home in this world that as we journey to our promised land, we no longer regard ourselves as strangers and pilgrims passing through what is largely enemy-occupied territory. We can become more inclined to draw friendly parallels with the ungodly in the world, rather than risk hostility and isolation by identifying ourselves more fully with Christ and daring to be different for his sake. So, these believers were strangers. That's how Peter first describes them. And then he tells us that they were scattered. Now, this is another interesting description of believers. The word, of course, in Scripture had its original main reference to what is known as the diaspora. That's the way in which the Jews were scattered throughout the ancient world living outside of the promised land, for example, when they were taken into captivity and so on. Now these believers that Peter's speaking to here, they were scattered, he tells us, throughout five provinces or districts in what is now modern Turkey. It was Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now in one sense, that was a remarkable testimony to the power and spread of the gospel. But the term was also used of those who had been called to endure suffering and persecution for the sake of Christ and were forced to leave their own familiar localities and to go elsewhere. 
You remember how it's described in Acts chapter 8 and verses 1 to 8. Whenever persecution arose against the church after the, the, the martyrdom of Stephen. And we read, they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. But the interesting thing is about these early Christians, they didn't scatter and cower in defeat. We read in verse 4 of that same chapter in Acts 8, that those who were scattered abroad went everywhere, preaching the word. In other words, they never abandoned their commission. Persecuted? Yes. Scattered? Yes. But still faithful to their calling. Taking the gospel of Jesus to Jew and Gentile alike. You know, when they link those two words together, strangers and scattered, they draw attention to the fact that as far as the company of God's people is concerned, here we have no continuing city. It's inevitable that God's people will encounter hostility for their fidelity to Jesus. And here in its opening words, this epistle indicates that such was already the case with these believers. They had already endured much. They had already suffered much for Christ. And there was more to come. There was much evidence that a new wave of persecution and scattering was about to be unleashed. There was another fiery trial up ahead, as Peter put it to them. The reason was that the Emperor Nero was the, the, on the throne at that particular time, the Roman Empire. This letter was written around AD 68 and just the year before the Christians in Rome were going to be made scapegoats for Nero's foolish and failed policies. And of course Peter could see that this anger and hostility toward Christians wasn't going to be confined to Rome. He discerned that further storm clouds would be gathering throughout the entire empire. And he wanted these churches to be forewarned and forearmed before they would be scattered further afield. So, there's the second way in which Peter describes these people. They were strangers. And they were scattered. Then the third way in which he describes them is that they were special people. Special. You see, having given us some indication of the circumstances of these believers in two words we have just considered, Peter now proceeds to describe them more precisely as God's people. They're God's people. And what he goes on to say about them indicates that they were a very special people. As God's people are. They were special to God. That's what set them apart. All God's people are special to him. But I think those who are being persecuted are even more special to him. Because they're more identified with what his son did and how his son lived. When he was here upon earth. See that's what sets these believers apart. 
We noted that when Peter was introducing himself, the first thing he did was to establish his relationship with Jesus. And he now does precisely the same concerning those to whom he is writing. He establishes the relationship of the recipients of his letter to our Lord Jesus Christ, and indeed to the triune God himself. Notice how he mentions each person of the Godhead. You see, it's the Trinity that is the foundation of the gospel and therefore the foundation of Peter's fellowship with them. And this is what gives this one-time fisherman from Galilee reason for communicating with these people in faraway provinces. This is what united them together. They were fellow believers in Jesus. It was a mutual interest and the spiritual bond in Christ that they had. It was the saving relationship that they enjoyed in him. The salvation they had in common was the bond that united them. A salvation planned by God the Father. Executed by God the Son. And applied by the Holy Spirit to their hearts and lives. You may remember that Paul has a similar statement in 2 Thessalonians, verses 13 and 14. He too was speaking of his relationship with the believers there, and this is what he says. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord. Because God from the beginning chose you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast. Now let's look a little more closely at this special relationship that Peter and Paul describe. It's well worth looking into. Three things are emphasized about this special relationship. The first you will notice, and it's emphasized by both Peter and Paul. The first thing is that the source of this relationship was in the electing love of God the Father. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's how Peter puts it here. Now to be elected simply means to be chosen. To be chosen by God. And what this means is fleshed out for us in other places in the scriptures. Because in both Old and New Testaments it speaks of a particular people as having been chosen and elected by God. In the Old Testament, for example, Psalm 33 and verse 12, it says... Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. And into the New Testament, put Ephesians 1, 4 to 5 alongside, and you see the similarity. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, 
according to the good pleasure of his will. You see, the elect are a people upon whom God set his heart, his heart of love upon them from all eternity, before the foundation of the world, before anything that was made, or before anything happened that happened in the entire universe. These people were already chosen by God to be his own peculiar prized possession. They weren't chosen for any good or any merit in themselves. Why were they chosen? He tells us. Because he loved them. From before the foundation of the world. He loved them. You may remember God speaking of his love for Jacob in contrast to Esau. In the Old Testament. Well, it's mentioned in the New Testament as well. In Romans chapter 9. He said that his choice of Jacob. Was before they were born. That neither having done good or evil. That the purpose of God according to election might stand. Not of works. But of him who calls. You see it wasn't something that depended upon human circumstances. Or human choice. Or human character. It was something that God did. Sovereignly. According to the good pleasure of his will. That's how scripture describes it. It's something that's rooted solely. In the love and in the grace of God. And while God makes the fact known to man. There's much surrounding his electing purpose that remains undisclosed. In the secret counsels of the eternal. Now there are some people who speak of the doctrine of election in very mechanical and cold terms. But that's not at all. How the Bible portrays the doctrine of election. Peter's additional phrase here is significant in this respect. He says they are elected according to the foreknowledge of God. Now that term doesn't mean. As I myself would have initially taken it to me. But and that was how I would heard it explained. That God's election was based upon prior knowledge that he had of those who would respond to his word eventually. But whenever you sit down to think about it, that just makes nonsense of the whole concept of election. Because it wouldn't then be God's election. It wouldn't be an election of grace. It wouldn't be an election according to the good pleasure of God's will. It would be merely underwriting man's election of himself to eternal life. See, the word for know doesn't merely mean to know beforehand. Know the theologians like John Murray and Charles Hodge have pointed out that the word is used of a special relationship. In the scriptures. It refers to people. Whom God 
peculiarly loved. People for whom he had a special love. And he demonstrated that love by selecting them or distinguishing them from the rest. For example, God says of his people in the Old Testament, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. You see, that is, God set his love upon, in a special way upon Israel as distinct from all the other nations. And when Peter uses the term here in relation to the church, he's simply saying that God's election of his people is not a mechanical thing. It's not a cold, arbitrary fate that's imposed. It's rather something that's motivated by a peculiar Special love in the heart of God. God's election is a loving election. It's an everlasting elective love that is displayed. It's an eternal choice that is buried in the ocean of the eternal love of God. What was written of Israel long ago is true of all God's people. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. For the Lord has chosen you to be a special people for himself. Above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor chose you. Because you are more in number than any other people. For you were the fewest of all people. But the Lord loved you because he loved you. And consequently, he redeemed you. That's what election is. It's something that lies at the very heart of the love of God. And that's why these people are described as special. But not only was it something that was grounded in the elective love of God. Peter goes on to tell us it was made known through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Peter says that these believers have not only been chosen by God the Father. But they have been sanctified or set apart. That they might be united with Christ and live in obedience to Christ. You know sometimes we think that. Sanctification only in terms of the work of the Spirit in the believer after he has come to faith in Christ. But it's true that we become more and more aware of the Spirit's purifying activity then as he seeks to conform us to the likeness of Christ in our lives and characters. But the work of the Spirit to this end is something that began long before that. Well, just think of it. It was the Holy Spirit who arranged the circumstances in our lives to confront us with the word of God and the gospel of Christ. When we had no desire for it. Never looked at it. It was the Holy Spirit who convicted us of our sin. Who showed us our real nature as lost creatures in the sight of God. It was the Holy Spirit who drew us to follow on when we 
couldn't understand ourselves in our helplessness and wretchedness as we stood before the righteous judgments of God and his law. It was the Holy Spirit who generated a living faith in Christ within us. That's not something we were able to do for ourselves. And it was the Holy Spirit who gave the witness through the word to our adoption into the family of Christ. Now the Holy Spirit did all those things in the life of every Christian before that Christian began to seek to live a holy life after his conversion. So you see, the sanctifying work of the Spirit is something that has been going on in a Christian's life even long before he was converted. As well as something that continues to go on until that, sanctifi that sanctification will be perfected into the likeness of Jesus fully when he comes again. So there's another very good reason why this relationship that Peter's talking about here is special, isn't it? It's not only something that's built in the eternal love of the Father. It's something that is something that is known through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit within us. And then there's one other thing. Peter tells us it was established and ratified in the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus. See the triune nature of the gospel of Christ and of the way of salvation. See it's through the work of the spirit that we are redeemed. Peter reminds us of this several times in this epistle. In chapter 1, 18, 19 he says, You were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. From your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. But with the precious blood of Christ. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And we could quote several other passages there as well. You see it's through the cross. That the righteous demands of God's law have been satisfied. The penalty has been paid. An atonement for our sins has been made. And it's there that our salvation has been accomplished. But this particular expression in verse 2. For obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. That draws our attention more to the application of that word. Peter probably had in mind the renewal of the covenant with the children of Israel at Sinai when the law was added to guide them in their relationship with God. And you see what was foreshadowed at Sinai was fulfilled in Jesus. As Phil was reminding us in this service this morning Christ is the ultimate altar. That's the place of sacrifice that Peter was looking to. That's the place that the Old Testament was looking to. You see, Jesus is the sacrifice. He is the fulfillment of God's law. He's the one whose obedience unto death secured for his people in every generation 
all the blessings of grace. And this is what Peter's rejoicing in here. And this is what he wants his readers to rejoice in. See, this is where the real security lies. This is where their eternal security is anchored, even though a thousand worlds should crack and fall into ruin around them. And this is where their real hope lay, even though a thousand emperors like Nero should threaten and trouble and persecute them. This is where true rest is found for the Church of Christ that faces persecution in this world. So I trust that by now you see what Peter's doing here. He describes the recipients of this letter in such a way as to remind them again of who they really are. Yes, they may be strangers, despised in this world. They may be scattered. They may be suffering. But they are chosen by God. And they're his special people. They were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. They were the objects of God's sanctifying work. A work that having begun. He would most surely complete. In bringing them to glory. So that's Peter's description of these persecuted believers. To whom he's writing. Now just in a few words. What was Peter's desire for the, for the recipients of this letter? And you find that in the last sentence there of verse 2. What does he say? He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. You see, in view of what Peter's already said, what more could he desire for these dearly loved brethren in Christ than the chief benefits provided in the work of Christ. And those chief benefits are summed up in these two words. Grace and peace. What more could be desired for God's people today? For you this evening? For me? He desires grace. This grace was, this salvation was all of grace. The undeserved favor of God to those who actually deserved his judgments. It was by grace alone that they had been brought into this special relationship with God. It was by grace they were saved through faith in Christ alone. It was only by grace that they could endure the difficulties they already had and even those that were coming. It was only by grace that they could live godly lives in this world. It was only by grace that they would be enabled to persevere to the end. You see, Peter could wish nothing better for them than the grace of God. And I could wish nothing better for you, for myself, than to be increasingly exposed that grace comes from God and then he desires peace for them see peace is what God has provided in the work of Christ remember how Paul put it in Romans 5 1 he has made peace 
through the blood of his cross. Peace is the primary blessing of being put right with God. Therefore, being justified by faith, he says, we have peace with God. But not only have we peace with God, we can have the peace of God ruling in our hearts and minds to enable us to be at peace in ourselves and as much as lies within us to be at peace with others. If as believers we're not in right terms with each other, we know nothing of the peace of God. Because it's the peace of God in our hearts that enables us to be at peace with others. And there are times when God makes even our enemies to be at peace with us. But so often the work of God in his people and the truth that they proclaim does awaken hostility and persecution. And that's what these Christians here, to whom Peter was writing, were finding. But you see, the wonderful truth that Peter's bringing to them is that in the midst of the wildest storms, the peace of God remains. Peter could wish them nothing more precious at such a time as this that they were in. You see, that word too incorporates all the positive blessings that flow from the salvation that God has provided for us in Jesus. And then there's just one other wee thing that Peter mentions there that I mustn't, I mustn't, I mustn't neglect. He not only wishes them mercy or grace and peace, but he desires that these blessings be multiplied to them. Did you notice that? May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Well, that's a really beautiful touch to finish this introduction, isn't it? How characteristic of the God who bestows such benefits. Peter had discovered for himself that God's never miserly with his bounties. He doesn't carefully measure out his blessings. He's a benevolent father who delights to lavish his love and his care upon his children. I remember reading the story of Billy Bray, the Cornish miner. He was wonderfully converted and went out to preach the gospel through the mines of Cornwall. He was speaking one time of the trials and the persecutions he encountered, and they were many. And this is what he said. He says, well, friends, I've been taking vinegar and honey, but praise the Lord. I've had the vinegar with a spoon, and I've had the honey with a ladle. See, that's what God's like. He's a God who loves to multiply his blessings. You see, what Billy Bray meant was that in view of the blessings he had in Christ, the trials weren't worth talking about. See, God's a God who multiplies his blessings. He's able to do exceeding abundantly above what we ask or think. 
because of the exceeding riches of his grace in Jesus Christ. Now let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for these words written so long ago by your apostles to these believers who are facing terrible persecution as well as that which they had come through. And Lord, we come to you as those who have had it easy, comparatively speaking. Although many of us, many of us have known what it has been to face this hostility of the world in which we live. Father, we ask it as we wait in your presence now that you will open our hearts to the inflow of that grace and that peace that you delight to give to your children to sustain in the midst of a hostile world. And we ask, Lord, that you will do as you have told us you love to do, to multiply those blessings to us. Minister then to all our needs just now in this way. This we ask again in that precious name, the name of Jesus. Amen.